and welcome to the Nature Jobs podcast. I'm Julie Gould. This month on our Windback Wednesday series on the Nature Jobs blog, we've actually been looking at how to get your scientific work published. But the world of scientific publishing is changing very quickly. We're no longer just relying on the printed word. Technology is changing so quickly that the number of ways in which we can access, discover and read scientific publications is multiplying almost every month. So to discuss this and the actual future of scientific publishing in an increasing digital world, I'm joined by Ewan Aidy, the director of Altmetric, and by Alex Hodgson, former lab rat and now head of marketing and outreach at ReadCube. So hi both and thank you very much for joining me. Alex, let's start with you. How do you think the digital world is changing the way that, that we interact with science and with, with science publications? I think we can think about that question sort of two different ways, like looking at how discovery has changed and then looking how the way, how the changes happen in the way we read. Um, traditionally, people have read by reading print articles or print magazines, and more and more people now are instead are searching online databases. And if you stop to think about that, I mean, that's a really big shift from uh, more of a journal focus to specific article focused. And the other issue is how... Um, when it comes to discovery is that as things have gotten more digital, is there's, there's also seems to be this huge amount of information now available and sifting through to find that needle in the haystack, that paper that you need to read. So we're finding more and more that people are using things like RSS feeds, um, Google Alerts, to kind of sift through the noise to make sure that you're not missing an important paper. The second part is about reading. You know, when I was in the lab, which wasn't that long ago, I mean, we used to go, you'd go to PubMed and you print the article out, and that's what you did, not... Uh, I don't remember ever reading an article on the computer. And I think that one of the main reasons was because it was portable. You could read it on the subway on your way to lab. Sitting in front of your computer wasn't, wasn't convenient, nor was it a really great reading experience. And so now we're finding that with mobile now, sort of everybody's got a device where they can surf the web, they can access PDFs, there's great apps out there. And you're able to not only have to print the paper, but to be able to take that paper with you where you go and read whenever is convenient for you. Um, it's just more accessible um, that way. And I think that that's been a big shift. Ewan, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I, I would certainly second all of those things. I think one thing that is important to bear in mind is that this isn't the end goal. Like We haven't reached the end point of digitization. We're not making full use of the fact that we've moved away from print and more onto the web. I think there's a lot of work still to be done. There's a lot of obvious things we could be doing on the web that we're not taking full advantage of yet. And the truism is that, yeah, scientists invented the web, but they're terrible at and actually adapting to it and, and making full use of it. It's taken us 10 years to get from a publisher website with all PDFs to now most publishers having, oh, well, the vast majority of publishers having HTML pages, for example, for their articles. But really, I think what's the exciting stuff is the next step. So really bringing in new ways of updating that content, making that content always reflect the latest version of the research, new ways of interacting with the content, and then to linking to other relevant bits, which kind of relates to the discovery part that Alex was talking about as well. But when I'm looking at a graph in a paper, why can't I click on the graph and then see the raw data behind it? That's something we could do on the web. You can't do it on a PDF, on a printed page. I, I want to go back and pick up on a point that Ewan made where he said, considering scientists created the internet and, and were behind it, we're quite slow on on sort of keeping up with its development. So Nature Jobs actually ran a poll recently and we've been asking so academics 
the question, what is your preferred method of reading academic papers? And so far we've had 387 votes and only 5% of those chose HTML. 95% of people preferred a PDF. And then of that 95%, almost half of those prefer to have it printed. It's a depressing statistic. It's not super surprising, I think. Yeah, if the only advantage at the moment to reading the HTML over the PDF is is what there's more adverts on the page and it, it doesn't look as good because it's not typeset. You know, I can see why people might prefer the PDF, which is cleaner and easier to use. What's instructive is to look at some publishers that have really kind of been born digital. I think you can make a clear distinction between publishers that are gradually moving from print to digital and others that have always been online only and, and sometimes have never had a print component. So I'm thinking of places like eLife, where if you go to the eLife site, it's, you know, it's still recognizably a scholarly paper, definitely. I mean, ultimately still something with an abstract and methods and then conclusion and then references. But they've really had, had every opportunity tried to take advantage of the fact that the content is digital. And, and that's everything from, you know, being able to view figures, you know, a nice big pop-up box or to pin things on one side of the screen while you scroll down. Alex, for you at ReadCube, that must be quite a depressing statistic as well, if even out of the ones that prefer the PDF, half of them prefer it printed. I mean, we find that, I mean, I find it really interesting because, I mean, I think we're creatures of habit. I mean, it's going to take some time. We've been printing the PDF for a long time and online article management tools like ReadCube um, are kind of new to the scene. So it's going to take some time to change those old habits. For one of the things that our users love is that we take all the interactivity of the HTML page and we inject it right into the PDF. It looks like the PDF. It's, they can highlight, they can do all the things they used to do on the paper. And those are some of the sort of the, the baby steps people take to get used to this new online way of doing things. So I think it was about two years ago that my mum bought an ebook. Before that, she actually was just completely against it. She thought, no, I like the physical book. I like the smell. I like to turn my page. I like to feel the book in my hand. And now she takes her ebook wherever she goes, She's on holiday, on the train, everywhere. There must have been some sort of tipping point there where, you know, it can't just have been my mum because you see them on the tubes everywhere now. Do you think there's going to be an equivalent tipping point for this sort of printed PDF to online publication reading at some point? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. So I'm not an expert in, in ebook adoption, but I do know that it wasn't something driven by a younger demographic, which is kind of what we always assume is going to be the case for this online stuff. I think, obviously, there was a lot of factors that went into that you know, ebook adoption thing, and partly it's the technology, but partly it's just people just getting used to it and, and actually trying things. So... You know, it's very easy to say, well, I like holding a paperback book in my hands and I like having the books on the shelf to look at and all this kind of thing. And what you really need to do is like actually have an ebook reader and then see the benefits for yourself. What's going to be that equivalent tipping point for scientific publication? Well, I think that the technology part for us and for is publishers, really, is publisher sites bringing enough value, again, beyond like just having adverts and clickable references to things that really persuade people oh, you know, it is actually useful. I shouldn't be printing out. I should be coming back uh, to the web page. What about you, Alex? I mean, this is something that Read ReadCube is doing at the moment. Are you seeing any sort of tipping point? Well, we're seeing accelerated adoption. Um, and I think that, I mean, at the end of the day, there's always going to be people who want to print the PDF. Um, and there's always people, I mean, that are going to want to prefer the book over the Kindle. 
Um, but I think the tipping point um, for the eBooks as well as with PDFs and, and is about convenience. Um, it's about accessibility. I mean, right now, I mean, I think one of the big things I saw with the eBooks is that when the price began to came down, there was different kind. Of, there was different options. I don't think we're, we're definitely not there yet. I think that I mean, as your survey showed, I mean, with 42% still printing, um, going and printing the PDF, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, but I think we're, that if you ran the survey, I would I would guess um, that in a year from now we would see that. You know, I would hope we'd see that number cut in half. Then there is also the other sort of the other side of the tipping point in that you know is there actually the demand for this do people really want this sort of thing you know a friend of mine said that for his job he likes to print out the pdf and read the pdf and then if he wants to look up something else afterwards he will then go away and search for those things afterwards but first and foremost it's about reading the content that is on that paper is that what people want are are all these sort of bells and whistles even even if it is online just a bit too much for people. Um, the issue is again that we're at this intermediate stage where what we should be aiming at is having research online in digital form. That's not the same as how do we digitize a PDF. There's no reason that you need to keep all of the thing, the good things about paper and try and match them exactly online. The idea is that online is different in some way, and ideally that difference is good and is giving you access to you know, new things. Then the second part of it is going back to the kind of adoption you have to kind of try it to see it and of course the other thing is that even when there's maybe one or two publishers rolling out something very new as a researcher you're consuming you know research from all over the place so you know to what degree I don't know the answer to this but I don't know what to what degree it's important that if there is a bell and whistle that it's the same bell and whistle across Elsevier, Springer, Nature, like all the other publishers that you might get papers from. So at the beginning of this conversation, you and you mentioned, actually you've mentioned it a few times, that we're sort of in in the middle or just starting this transition of digitising science and putting this data online. But what is the end goal of this? I mean, the online capabilities are just far beyond what we could predict right now. And is what we produce on paper really actually appropriate for online? Do we need to get rid of abstracts and conclusions and the, the, t- the format that we have and just have everything continuously coming out all the time, immediate analysis, immediate tweets, spreading, you know, everything in, in the ways that the internet and the digital world can offer? Is, is that where science is going? And then does, what does that mean for publishers? About 10 years ago in my old lab, the minute we solved a protein structure, we would publish it right away. Like it went in the public domain and that was it. And everybody had a heart attack. We're never going to publish. We're never going to get, we're never going to leave this lab. We're never going to get another job. And I think there's a lot of fear on sharing information beyond the traditional publication route. You know, I look forward to the industry continuing to change, but I think it's going to be a bit of a long haul and a lot of people have to be around the table with bought in about what that future looks like and how we're going to properly encourage and incentivize researchers in, in their career in these new altmetric models. Talking of altmetric models, you know, Ewan, well, what have you got to say on this? When we're thinking about moving online, why are we restricting just papers? The, the Redfield Lab, Rosie Redfield is a scientist over in the States and she's kind of famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, where she and all the people in her lab live blog what they're doing. So they'll do an experiment and they'll write a blog post about it and say, like, here's how I went. Why couldn't you take a blog post or set of blog posts and enter them into the scholarly record 
you know, give them a DOI or whatever is required to make them an accepted sort of first class citizen of, of the scholarly literature, why couldn't you review them, disseminate them widely? And finally, why shouldn't you be able to get credit for that? And that last bit, the getting credit for your work is where all metrics come in. And really the new aspect of that is, well, first of all, getting credit from different sources. So rather than just another paper citing you, which is a measure of scholarly influence, why shouldn't I also get credit if there's some evidence of public engagement, for example, that my work has reached a certain segment of the public? If I'm a biomedical researcher and I write something that is picked up by patient advocate groups, say I'm working on a, a particular disease and there's a group of patients that really benefit from that, those patients don't write a paper, but you know, they've been really helped by my work. Why am I getting credit for that? So partly it's by different sources. And then the other part of it is different objects. Why do I need to write a paper to get credit for something? I used to work in bioinformatics, and the big problem there was that you create software for bioinformatics, but the only way that you can get credit for software is if you then write a two-page paper, which essentially you know gives it a title and it has some screenshots. And it just seems a bit weird that you have to have that wrapper around it to be eligible for any of the good things that... That could come out of research. Exactly, yeah. Okay, well, let's leave it on that. Thank you very much, both of you. So that's it for this episode. If you've got any comments or thoughts, we really, really would like to hear from you. So leave them in the comments section below on the blog or use the NJ podcast hashtag on Twitter. To find out more about Nature Jobs, you can go to our blog at blogs.nature.com forward slash Nature Jobs or follow us on Twitter at Nature Jobs or even on Facebook. So that's all for now. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Julie Gould.